Welcome to the First NAS Podcast. Today, Pastor Paul is talking about how we minister to the poor through the Union Gospel Mission here in the LC Valley. And he's also finishing up his sermon series on the kingdom of God is. Let's listen to him as he preaches from Matthew chapter 13. Uh, I have a few things that I'm, I'm doing this morning during my sermon time. I, I want to talk about the United Gospel Mission in, here in Lewiston, and so I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes. And then I'm going to come to the end of my series through Matthew chapter 13, looking at the kingdom parables that Jesus taught during his ministry. And so uh, I, I want to begin by just talking about our the biblical mandate, really, to, to care for the, the poor among us. And then our historic commitment as the Church of the Nazarene and, and as a local church to care for, for the poor. And so I, I'm going to begin uh, by, by giving, well, I'm going to give a couple of reasons why, why I think we ought to, to consider supporting the Union Gospel Mission as individuals. As, as a community, as a, as a group of believers, as a church, we have uh, we have been looking at the problem of poverty among us in, from a variety of different angles. There have been a number of expressions of compassionate ministry and ministry to the to the poor and homeless in our community right from here. But our primary mode of of helping in uh, with poverty and and homelessness in the community has been partnering with other organizations, and we we are like really stalwart supporters of Family Promise. We, we love Family Promise, uh, not just because we love Steve, but even after, after my family had the experience, we had hosting a meal with the Family Promise uh, family last, last May, in May, uh, just this last month. We are, we are all the more convinced in the power of Family Promise and the good things that, that Family Promise is doing here in the Valley. And we'll continue to be stalwart supporters of, of Family Promise. As, uh, as I have come and, and started to, to try to think about how we give in our community and how we partner with other organizations, though, it's been my goal to not just fill out a budget line because we gave so much money to a certain organization the previous year, but that we, we evaluate. And so I started this last year in the fall uh, a process where our budgeting doesn't, doesn't say how much we're going to give to different organizations. Our, but in our budget, we set aside an amount that we have decided we will, we will give charitably within our community to the partner organizations we give to. And then in the fall, uh, having a, a part of the board or the board kind of evaluate how we are giving and try to invest where we can make the most impact with the money that we give as a congregation. We, we also give opportunity uh, on occasion to, to specific fundraisers from, from different groups in our community that, that work in a variety of areas. We're very soon uh, planning on, on doing baby bottle change drive for Life Choices Clinic, so that'll be coming here this summer. Uh, we, we, just, we want to be a church that, um, that gives generously and makes an impact in our community. So uh, UGM fits with who we have been historically and, and I believe who we are as a, as a congregation. And let me tell you why I believe that. And, and first, let me start with the distinctive of, of who we are as the Church of the Nazarene. 
the, the Church of the Nazarene has historically been a church uh, that, that operates uh, among the poor. In our, our foundation church, our, our very first expressions that looked like churches were in rescue missions, were, were in Southern California uh, among, among uh, people coming out of lives of addiction and, and helping people move from poverty into a self-sustainable life. Uh, and, and as a congregation, or as a denomination, we have continued to, to make a commitment to the poor. In fact, one of, our, one of our foundational documents we call the Covenant of Christian Character, or Covenant of Christian Conduct, excuse me. The Covenant of Christian Conduct addresses specifically some of our, our distinctives. The way we think that holiness, Nazarene life should look in the world and so last year when I addressed Roe versus Wade being overturned, I read from, from the Covenant of Christian Conduct because it talks about our position on, on uh, life, that, that we affirm and, and believe in protecting life and, and supporting, supporting young families that are, or young women who are pregnant and unsure. And, and we believe, this is, these are the kinds of things that uh, we're reminded of by our covenant of Christian conduct. I'm going to read, if you're following along in your manual, I'm sure many of you bring your manual to church. I'm going to be reading this morning from the, the manual, paragraph 28.3, and so if you'd like to open to your manual. I had joked last time I read from it that it's the most inspired book I know, and uh, it was just a joke, I promise. So, uh, But I do believe that it... it it challenges us in some, some good ways. So listen to what we say. The Church of the Nazarene believes this new and holy way of life involves practices to be avoided and redemptive acts of love to be accomplished for the souls, minds, and bodies of our neighbors. One redemptive area of love involves the special relationship Jesus had and commanded his disciples to have with the poor of this world. That his church ought first to keep itself simple and free from an emphasis on wealth and extravagance. Second, to give itself to the care, feeding, clothing, and shelter of the poor and marginalized. Throughout the Bible, in the life of, and example of Jesus, God identifies with and assists the poor, the oppressed, and those in society who cannot speak for themselves. In the same way, we too are called to identify with and enter into solidarity with the poor. We hold that compassionate ministry to the poor includes acts of charity, as well as a struggle to provide opportunity, equity, and justice for the poor. We further believe the Christian's responsibility to the poor is an essential aspect of the life of every believer who seeks a faith that works through love. We believe Christian holiness to be inseparable from the ministry to the poor in that it drives the Christian beyond their own individual perfection and toward the creation of a more just and equitable society and world. Holiness, this is the last sentence and I think it's really good. Holiness, far from distancing believers from the desperate economic needs of people in the world, motivates us to place our means in the service of alleviating such needs and to adjust our wants in accordance with the needs of others. 
The manual then suggests a handful of scriptures to point to the, the importance, the scriptural mandate for, for Bible believers to care for the poor. And so I'm going to just, I'm going to read them. And they'll be in the PowerPoint. You can follow along, but I'm going to read quick. Exodus 23, uh, 11 says, But let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for the wild animals to eat. The same applies for your vineyards and olive groves. In Deuteronomy 15.7, we read, But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns, when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Psalm 41, Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. The Lord rescue, rescues them when they are in trouble. Psalm 82.3, give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the righteous or the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Proverbs 19.17, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. Proverbs 21.13, those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. Proverbs 22.9, Blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. Jeremiah 22, 16. He gave justice and help to the poor and needy, and anything, everything went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord? And unless you would think that it's only in the Old Testament that the uh, Bible tells us to, to help the poor, here are some words from Jesus in Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said to them, if you want to be perfect, or said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Luke 12, 33, it looks very similar. It is not a parallel passage. The first one is the rich young ruler from Matthew 19. Luke 12 is Jesus teaching uh, a crowd of people. He says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Before I move away from the Gospels, I'd remind you of the parable of the sheep and the goats where Jesus says the way the righteous are separated from the wicked is by their treatment of those who are poor. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving shelter to those who who have nowhere to stay. Jesus says that is the the qualifying factor for if if the king will say, "Come into my presence." Then in the book of the Acts, uh, we read chapter twenty, verse thirty-five, and I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And then from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, verse 10, their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. So let me, this is the, the historical Nazarene foundation of why and scriptural foundation of why we ought to help the poor, and there are myriad ways to help the poor, and I know that our congregation has been very generous 
but let me share a couple of reasons why I think UGM fits with, with who we are. And the first is, is historical, but not on a grand scale. It's, it's the history of this church and our relationship to the United Gospel Mission in Spokane. Uh, in, during Pastor Cliff Purcell's time here, um, the, the pastor that preceded me, uh, our, our congregation started sending some folks into North Lewiston to work with some poor and homeless people. Uh, during that time, the, the ministry that just began, I, as I understand it, began fairly organically, turned into more and more. And as it turned into more and more, it got a little more established. Uh, one of our, of our members who has passed on to the church triumphant, Rich Copeland, gave generously to purchase a property in North Lewiston. And in 2013, the, uh, the Rock, the Reach Out Center, was uh, started as a nonprofit, a separate nonprofit from the church, inviting other churches in the community to, to partner with us in, in helping the poor and homeless in, in North Lewiston. The Rock was, was incredible, offered a great number of services. Unfortunately, it, it uh, does not continue. Uh, the, the model was, was low barrier, uh, and so it was, it was doing what is very scriptural, which is helping everybody regardless of, of their state in life and, and their, their desire to step away from the things, the habits and addictions that had caused them uh, to, to find themselves in poverty and homeless. Um, very scriptural. The community doesn't always like when, when the church does what is scriptural. And, and we found ourselves in a, in a position where the rock uh, closed its doors. And I, I, I am not familiar with the timeline completely, but my understanding is shortly before I arrived here about two years ago, uh, the, the rock board agreed to... to uh, dissolve and give the real estate, give the assets of the rock to the UGM in Spokane in order that the United Gospel Mission in Spokane would be able to begin a presence here in the valley. They sold the property in North Lewiston, purchased the property that's there on Snake River Avenue where their thrift store has been, and they, they now have a vision of turning that into a clean and sober uh, shelter for, for men, women, and women with children. And so, uh, the... Uh, our history, um, you know, the, the, the UGM stands on the legacy of the rock in, in many, many ways. And so, I, I think it honors the commitment that we have made as a congregation to, to continue to support the UGM. The second reason... Why, why I think Spokane UGM specifically is, is a worthwhile partner is their record in Spokane and Coeur d'Alene. Um, they, they are doing good work. They are good at what they do. The UGM is, is a clean and sober shelter, so it doesn't, it doesn't uh, provide assistance to everybody in our community that needs assistance. It, it, they don't work with people who, are, who say we're not ready to give up our addictions for, for shelter. The UGM requires, requires their clientele to be, to be committed to living clean and sober. And, and so, but what they do in Spokane and Coeur d'Alene is powerful and it's working in lots of lives. Their facilities in Spokane and Coeur d'Alene are beautiful and well-kept and uh, they, I think they bring an important prong 
of a multi-pronged approach to homelessness in, and poverty in our community um, that, that isn't currently available, really, uh, in our community. So let me just share a little bit of information about the UGM. There's, uh, you can see there, this is a point-in-time count. I, I think Steve is involved in, in doing the census. Uh, each year, the, uh, a number of organizations that help the poor and homeless in our, in our area uh, try to get a, a handle on how many, how many homeless and unsheltered people there are in, in the area. This is the 2020 count, and it represents five Idaho counties. So this doesn't include any counties in Washington, but you can see 268 uh, homeless and, and 213 uh, un, unsheltered. The next slide here is a rendering of the shelter that they, they hope to build on uh, Snake River Avenue. Um, the, these pictures have been out and about, but I just wanted to, to show what, they, what they're hoping to, to do. This would be like driving, driving south on Snake River Avenue, the view. And then the next slide shows from the other end, uh, driving north on Snake River Avenue. So this would be, be the Valley's first clean and sober shelter uh, for single men, single women, and mothers with children. In the, the model that they uh, hope to begin here in Lewiston is a program they call Rescue. And Rescue is, is simply a sheltering program that provides, it, it provides food and shelter, case management, so helping folks connect with resources, other resources in the community, uh, job training, and then spiritual support. They invite churches to, to come and interact with men and women, families there in the, in the shelter and provide discipleship, provide, provide spiritual support. Folks who, who commit, to, who, who are, are not dealing with active addiction, who are not, uh, don't need the long-term recovery from, from addiction, will be connected with resources, hopefully jobs and affordable housing here in the valley. Um, men and women who are dealing with, with addiction and need long-term recovery will be invited to the Spokane and Coeur d'Alene facilities in order to, to go through a longer-term period of, of recovery. They say it takes, I think the, the statistics that Phil Altmeyer, their director, uses is it takes five years uh, for someone to to live clean and sober to to make it uh, to a point where they're where they're confident in their ability to live without relapsing into addiction, and so it's a long process, and and they invest in men and women for the long haul, and and so we uh, I, I think this is a good part of a multifaceted approach to to homelessness and poverty in our community. Their goal is to raise $7 million. Uh, the, that includes $700,000 for their first year of operation and then $6.3 million for construction costs there on Snake River Avenue. They, the the uh, Union Gospel Mission Foundation has provided $4 million of that, and then they're, they're trying to raise $3 million here in the Lewis-Clark Valley. Phil Altmeyer, who is the director of the Spokane UGM, uh, I'm a fan of Phil's uh, not, not least in part because he's a graduate of Northwest Nazarene College, um, but uh, he's, uh, he's an impressive leader and, and has done well in, in Spokane. He's given the challenge to, to the Valley that if each Christian would give one day's worth of earnings, 
one day's worth of earnings to, to help fight poverty in our community. Um, and, you know, like I said, we, we have people who are giving all over, the, all over town. If folks would give one day's worth of, of earnings to, uh, to fight poverty, that would get the UGM a long ways toward, toward their goal. And I, I thought that was a, a reasonable, reasonable suggestion. If you would like to give to the UGM, uh, in your pew there is a card that you can do online giving right here. Uh, we are happy as a congregation to facilitate giving to the UGM. If you want to drop a check in the offering box, just mark it Union Gospel Mission, and we will make sure it gets to the right place. We always try to be faithful with giving designated to anything outside our walls. So that is, that is the UGM. Um, and uh, we, we as a, a leadership board, we, we've talked long and hard about uh, how we will continue to support, and, and we are continuing in prayer. Uh, we will continue to, to see, to see um, how, how we can support, what we can do, and, and we, we hope that by, by being wise about our giving, uh, we'll, we'll be able to, to encourage the UGM uh, to, to continue to invest in, in our community and in the poor. Thank you for, for listening to that. Let me just turn the page now to Matthew chapter 13. I want to wrap up the sermon series, and I kind of have not so much a sermon from the last parable as, as kind of a devotional, really, um, and, and why that makes a difference to a preacher, I don't know. It just, in my mind, this is a devotional rather than a, than a sermon. So here's a little devotional thought on Matthew 13. Uh, we've, been, we've been talking about these parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven. These parables give so much insight into who Jesus understood himself to be. Because Jesus is presented throughout Matthew as the bringer of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is... is Begin, he begins his ministry with that declaration, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And throughout his ministry, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, over and over again, it's about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom that he has come to establish. And we've looked at the importance of, uh, through, through these parables, we've looked at the importance of preparing our hearts, of providing the right environment, providing the right conditions for the kingdom to the, the seed of the kingdom to, to bear fruit in our lives, for it to grow, for it to expand. Uh, we, we've talked about the value of the kingdom, the incredible value that, that we place on the kingdom and that it's worth everything we have to, to gain the kingdom. And then today we're looking at a parable that repeats a, a feature of, of a parable that Pastor Becca preached about clear back in the end of April and, uh, and, then, and then we'll look a little bit further beyond the last parable to just one little snippet of teaching that Jesus, Jesus gave about these truths about the kingdom. He's, he's like preaching about truths about the kingdom in this last little snippet. So I'm looking at a couple of paragraphs today. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 52. Why don't you stand with me as we read the gospel passage this morning? And so we're reading from Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 52. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up 
onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand these things? Yes, they said, we do. Then he added, Every teacher of the religious law who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Lord, we thank you for this word from our Savior Jesus, a reminder of your patience and goodness with us. May you bless us as we try to understand it more deeply this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, the the parable of the fishing net, it really runs parallel uh, with the the parable that Pastor Becca preached back in April, which is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Uh, It's a parable that gives us a picture of God's patience with sin and with sinful people, with the unrighteous or the wicked, as, as they're called in this passage. Both parables talk about that time that is coming. They talk about the reality that now... Everybody's together, <laughs> the wicked and the righteous. Everybody, it's a, it's a whole big mix. It's a mixed pot. We're all, we're all together in this thing. But there is a time coming when, when the Lord anticipates judgment and the angels will separate. And, and the, the two passages, when Jesus is interpreting the, the parable of the weeds and the wheat in, in verses 41 and 42, it's almost identical to these verses I read in verses 49 and 50 where Jesus talks about the imagery of, of the fishing net. It's the angels separating the, the righteous, setting them aside, the wicked going to, to punishment. And I think there's two, two clear messages that we get from, from this imagery. And the first, the first of these two clear messages is Jesus' confidence. Jesus' total confidence in God's sovereign ability to bring his own will to pass. Jesus tells these parables and and he interprets them with total confidence in in the future judgment coming to to all of humanity. Uh, He he talks about this this future reality with the same sort of confidence that he talked about his own his own personal future in the gospels when he talked about going to Jerusalem to be crucified Jesus just without any equivocation without saying i think what might going to happen is Jesus just lays out these these teachings and and the idea i think the idea of a future judgment and a future a, a future end of the world it has become more and more foreign in our culture as, as we have moved away from a, a baseline biblical understanding of the world. In, in, our, in our world, you know, a, a biblical worldview is not, is not common, as common as it was uh, years ago. And the idea that the world will come to an end is sort of foreign and strange to, to many ears now. And, and I think this, this idea that there is coming judgment is even stranger. Uh, we, uh, we, I think we have a hard, hard time with this in our, in our culture. And, and we don't teach a lot about future judgment 
in the Church of the Nazarene. And, and part of the reason we don't teach about it is because we're kind of, we believe it's happening. We say, yes, our, we have an article of faith. There is coming a future judgment. Jesus will come again. He will judge the living and the dead. But we, we are not going to divide over when or how or what or where. Uh, we, we, are, we are willing to say Scripture leaves it pretty open for interpretation of how future judgment will look. And so, read Scripture. Try to understand. Gain wisdom. Under, but hold, hold your belief about, about what is coming in the future with an open hand. And, and know that our, our interpretation of Scripture is is kind of, uh, it, it comes through our fallible human understanding of things. And, and God, God's plan will be God's plan when God enacts God's plan. And we won't get to say, but wait, I read this passage to say, Jesus, you weren't going to do that. God's not going to listen to our instructions on the timeline of, of his return. And so, uh, Jesus, Jesus talks, though, about future judgment, and quite a bit in the Gospel of Matthew. There's quite a few parables that reference the, this time that is coming, that, that God will live, judge the living and the dead, that all, all people will stand accountable uh, for, for whether they honored him or not in their lives. But he doesn't talk about future judgment in a way that gives us any confidence that we could ever know about what's coming <laughs> other than judgment. Uh, he, he says, you know, I don't even know the time. I don't even know when it's going to happen. Only the Lord, only God the Father knows when this is going to happen. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're anticipating it. Jesus doesn't teach about it to give us details about it. Jesus teaches about future judgment to, to motivate us to live every moment of our lives ready for it. Because we never know at what moment the Lord will call us home. We never know at what moment Jesus may return. And, and so we are to live every moment of our lives ready, ready for judgment. The old preacher tells the, the new preacher, uh, there's three things that uh, you've got to always be ready for. You've always got to be ready to pray, to preach, and to die. And so... Uh, as, as believers, as, as lay people, you should probably always be ready to pray, preach, and die, uh, but it, particularly as preachers, we're hopefully ready to pray, preach, and die at any moment. The second clear message, so, so the first message is, is Jesus' just utter confidence. The way he teaches about future judgment, it's, it is going to happen, ready or not. It is going to happen. The second clear message we get from, from the parable of the fish, fishing net is, is what <clears throat> Pastor Becca really clearly highlighted in her interpretation of the parable of the wheat and weeds, and that is God's total patience with the wicked for the time being. Uh, God, God is, is so patient um, and at times, we get really frustrated that God doesn't act against wickedness, right? Like, this is a long-standing historical God-follower frustration. <laughs> since, uh, since the Old Testament, people have been frustrated that God is not working. It, when we look at the book of Psalms, we, we read lament after lament. 
God, why are you letting the wicked prosper? Why are the righteous suffering the way we are? God's people for millennia have been saying, God, why are you so patient with the wicked? Would you, would you just deal with, with evil? And, and we, we mistake at times God's patience to mean that God won't judge, that there isn't coming a time when God will judge all things. But again, Jesus is so clear and so adamant and speaks so pointedly to that time when, when all people will stand accountable for the way that they've lived. Um, I've, I've talked about, as, as we, we talk about our frustration that God doesn't act, I, I, we, we also notice in our, in our own lives that we continue to deal with, with evil around us. We continue to, to be hard-pressed on every side. We continue to, to see our, <clears throat> our loved ones and our brothers and sisters deal with sickness, um, with injury, with, with all kinds of things that we think, man, why wouldn't God just protect his people? Uh, and and uh, I'm reminded of, of a quote I've shared with you before from, from an author, James Finney. He says, God is that which protects us from nothing, but sustains us through all things. God, God has promised to be with us. Jesus has promised to be with us. He said, even to the very end of the age. When we think about the end of, of uh, Romans chapter 8, Paul lists all of the things that cannot separate us from God's love. Sickness and, and famine, persecution, even death. They can't separate us from God's love. But Paul was telling the church in Rome all of these terrible things that could befall you can't separate you from God's love because all of those terrible things were befalling the church in Rome. God, God has, has not offered protection and a bubble over his people. And shame on us when we, when we confuse comfort for God's blessing. God, God does not provide blessing by, by comfort. It, we, we should look at the, the historical church in scripture to understand that God is not interested in giving us leisure. God is not interested in, in telling us it's okay, everything's all right, you're, you're just fine. God, God puts us in the fire to refine us and test us. But God's, God's patience, um, God's patience allows time for the wicked, though, it allows time because God, God is continuing to call. God's grace is going out to everyone. The parable breaks down at this point, right? The parable is not perfect because, like, the righteous, they're, they're good fish separated into crates, and they go to market and get eaten. Like, that's not a real good fate. So we don't want to <clears throat> focus on that too much. But then the... Thanks. The... the um, the parable doesn't allow for, for a wicked person to become righteous, right? Fish can't, can't change. A, a bass cannot become a trout. Uh, but in, in the kingdom, in God's economy, the wicked can repent. The wicked can come to know, can come to know the Lord. And, and uh, 
as we, as we experience God's patience, <laughs> we're, we're reminded of, of our responsibility and our role as kingdom citizens to continue to, to invite others to experience Jesus as their king, to, to share the goodness of our king, to share the possibility of forgiveness in the life that God has, has created us for. And the, the, the parable reminds us also of the not yet complete nature of the kingdom. As God is patient, God is, is patient in fully establishing his kingdom. Jesus began his ministry saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are citizens of the kingdom right here and right now. We live as, as subjects to King Jesus. He is our ruler. But we recognize that there is still more of the kingdom to come. And that's why Jesus told us when we pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the Christian life is, is a life of, of anticipation, of waiting, of hoping. And so we, we wait with hope. Well, Matthew tells us after Jesus had, had taught some of these parables, he checked for understanding. In, in verse 51, Jesus asked, do you get it? And the disciples say, yeah, we get it. It's cool. Thanks, Jesus. And then Jesus gives one last image to, to ponder in, in verse 52. He says, every teacher of the religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. When Jesus is talking about a uh, teacher of the religious law, he's talking about people who understand the Old Testament. He's talking about people who understand uh, what God has been saying for centuries through, through his prophets and, and through the authors of the Old Testament. Jesus says the person who understands both the Old Testament and, and what God has been doing through his people, uh, the nation of Israel, for, for centuries and understand the kingdom of heaven. Those people are, are wealthy beyond means. They're not just like people who inherited wealth and, and they're living off of, of the savings. And they're not just like the Johnny-come-lately tech billionaire that's just like made all this money all of a the sudden. This, these people are, are truly wealthy. They, they, have, they have this vast store of gems to pull from. And, and so Jesus is, is teaching us to understand how his kingdom relates to, to what God has been doing throughout history, through his people. And as, as we read about it in the Old Testament, to understand how, how God has continued the same thread of redemption, the same thread of redemption, the, the same thread of creation and making all things new, the same thread of, of the fall and and. Our, our loss of God's perfection for us uh, has run through all of Scripture and runs into the kingdom of heaven. So you remember back earlier in this chapter, Jesus talked about hearing and understanding. I think we have a graduation party heading to go set up for a graduation party. Uh, Jesus has talked about hearing and understanding, right? Uh, so when, when he, we were in the first parable, he, he kind of does this aside to, to look at some Old Testament prophecy and the idea that 
that some people hear and understand, but some people hear and they don't understand. Some people see and they perceive, they, they know what Jesus is talking about. Some people see and they, they just, they don't. And, and um, Jesus has, has been talking to people who want to see and perceive, but we also understand on the, on the margins, especially in the, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus was talking to a mixed crowd of, of religious teachers who, who were deciding, who were choosing to block their ears to cover their eyes as Jesus was unveiling the truth of the kingdom. They didn't understand the importance of, of preparing the soil for the seed of the gospel. They didn't understand the importance of providing <clears throat> the right environment so that the message of the kingdom could grow and take root and, and develop fruit in the life of a person. They don't understand uh, the, the incomparable value of the kingdom. They don't understand this truth that judgment is coming but right here at the end of the chapter, Jesus talks about the value of understanding how the, the kingdom fulfills all that those religious teachers already knew. They were, they were standing there listening into Jesus with all of the knowledge that they could have just plugged into this, this truth about the kingdom, and, and they, they miss it. Jesus says, for anybody who's willing to listen, though, there is a wealth there's a wealth here for us, and a wealth that will, that will transform our lives. The ability to, to understand Jesus' kingdom as, as, Jesus, uh, as Jesus intended. Jesus invites us to be people who understand the, the full scope of his story, from creation to the fall to redemption to judgment that is coming. And, and we live as people on, on this timeline. One of the ways that Jesus taught us to do that, uh, one of the gems of truth that Jesus has put on kind of a low shelf for us so that we can grasp it, uh, is right here in the meal of communion. Uh, this is just, this is an example of what Jesus means when he talks about those who understand the, the teachers of the law, the, the teachers of the law that can, can grasp the kingdom, can grasp so much more. Because Jesus took this, this law, the, the feast of the Passover, this, this incredible imagery that God's people had from early in the Old Testament times when, when God was just beginning to, to create the nation of Israel. God, God used the Passover for their redemption, for them, redemption was freedom from Egypt. It was freedom from, from slavery, and it was their own land that they could call their own. Jesus came and, and he celebrated the Passover feast, saying, this is a new, a new way of understanding this, that when you feast on my body and my blood, I'm inviting you to be a new people. You're not going to be a, a people right here in the promised land, but you're going to be people who are citizens of my kingdom. You are welcome to, to call me your king, and, and you are invited to live these, these values of this kingdom that, that I've explained to you. And, and Jesus, Jesus welcomes us to experience freedom through, through his kingdom 
experience establishment, that, that we would be rooted in, in his kingdom, that we would, we would be a part of his body. And so uh, we come this morning to, to receive the meal of, of communion. We, we remember how Jesus spoke about it on that night that he was betrayed. When, when Jesus uh, gathered with his disciples, he, he reinterpreted the Passover for them. And for the first time ever, he, he reminded them that what they were eating, it wasn't just bread, they weren't drinking just wine. They were welcomed into this table that he had invited them to. The king himself had set the table before them and said, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood which is poured out for you. And so we come to this table as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, ready to experience Jesus as our king, our host. Jesus invites us. He invites everybody who will take of it. Everybody who will come with a sincere heart is welcome to receive from Jesus. And he reminds us in this meal about his suffering and death, going to the cross for our redemption. And he reminds us in this meal of that future day when we will all sit at his banqueting table and he will host us face to face after having set all things right and establishing his kingdom fully. And so I invite you to to partake uh, we have servers who, who are going to come and uh, divvy up, and uh, I just invite you to, to take the elements, and then once you have them, we'll say a word of prayer, and uh, we'll, we'll take together once everybody has the elements. Thanks for joining us for the First NAS podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 South 8th Street in Lewiston soon.